Uh, a little bit of context for those who haven't been around in the earlier uh, months of this year. Uh, we're looking at uh, the book, uh, the first 12 chapters of the book of Isaiah in three different sections. So we've looked at uh, chapters 1 to 4 already. Uh, in the next few weeks, uh, we're looking at chapters 5 to 7. And then in the lead up to Christmas, we'll be looking at chapters 8 to 12, which has some of those great passages about Emmanuel, God with us, uh, for unto us a child is born, and, and so on. Uh, so that, that's the plan uh, for where we're headed, and that's why we're diving into Isaiah chapter 5 today. Uh, I'm going to pray. Let's pray. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, we, uh, we do pray that this day uh, you would move in our hearts in such a way uh, that we would be a more fruitful people, uh, that we would bear much fruit that brings honour and praise to your name. Uh, in, in the name of our Lord Jesus we pray. Amen. Uh, so I, I'm not a very good gardener at all. Uh, in fact, uh, if you come to our house, you'll see that we've got pretty much no garden and, and what we do have isn't exactly in a pristine condition. Uh, I, I'm good at, I'll tell you the things I'm good at when it comes to gardening. Uh, I'm good at, at getting weeds to grow. Uh, I'm very good at getting thistles to grow. Uh, I can kill pretty much any plant you give me. Like you can give me a challenge. Uh, you say, this, this plant will grow anywhere. This herb will grow anywhere. You give it to me, uh, I'll manage to kill it. Right? So uh, I am not much of a gardener at all. And to be honest, sometimes, right, not, not all, the, all the time, sometimes there's po- some positive things, but, uh, but sometimes I feel like that's, that's what my spiritual life is like. Uh, I feel like if my spiritual life was a garden, uh, sometimes uh, I feel that there's a whole lot more weeds or thistles or thorns uh, than there is fruit. I don't know if you can relate to this. You, I, get, I get frustrated at my lack of fruit, the lack of character change that Gabby was just talking about. I long to see more fruit. Perhaps you can connect with that in some way. And then we come to a passage like today's passage, of which the main point is that God expects each and every one of us, if you're a Christian, he expects you and me uh, to bear good fruit. That's his expectation of us. He expects us to bear good fruit. Uh, you might have gathered when Joel read the passage just now uh, that this passage is a song. Right? It's there in verse 1. We've got the introduction to the song. Have a look in, in verse 1 of the passage. Isaiah says, I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. Right, so this is Isaiah. Right? Isaiah is a singer here. Uh, he's singing before a crowd. Probably like he's actually singing this uh, before a crowd in Jerusalem. Uh, so we know that Isaiah is the singer. But what's not so clear is who the one Isaiah loves is. And who this vineyard is. Well, you might have your suspicions about those things, but we'll find those things out as the, the song progresses. So that's the intro to the song. Like all God's songs, uh, good songs, it's got an intro. What about the lyrics of the song? Have a look. In the rest of verse 1 and the first part of verse 2, uh, we, we see how the owner of this uh, vineyard, uh, let's call him the gardener. No, I'm going to call him the gardener. Let's, uh, we see how he prepares uh, for good fruit. Have a look there. Isaiah says, My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones. Uh, He planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Just this uh, couple of verses. I want you to notice five things that tell us uh, that this gardener does absolutely everything possible uh, to prepare for good fruit. He's a very good gardener. First, uh, notice that he plants his vineyard on a fertile hillside. It's not like he he destines his vineyard to fail by picking some arid patch of land. No, he finds fertile land. Land that's perfect for growing grapes. Land that that gets just the right amount of sun and and rain. 
It's a fertile hillside. Second, uh, notice that even though it's a a fertile hillside, the soil's already pretty good. Uh, He he spends a whole lot of time uh, preparing the soil properly, doing the extra work, right? Uh, In this part of the world, uh, this vineyard's probably being planted on the side of of what would have been a, a limestone hill, so what happened on these hills is, is over time the weather uh, kind of eroded the hill and it produced this beautiful uh, red clay soil uh, that was perfect for growing grapes. Right? But, but uh, not all the soil or all that rock had been eroded at the same rate. So you had this beautiful soil mixed up uh, with a whole lot of stones. And so what the conscientious gardener had to do was clear away all those stones uh, before the vineyard would really take root. And, that, and that's what this gardener does. He, he clears away all the stones, so there's, there's nothing that will get in the way uh, of this vineyard bearing fruit. Oh, that's really important. Uh, and then uh, before he plants... Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, then uh, there's... Uh, uh, once he's dug up all those stones... Uh, he gathers the rest of the stones together, the ones uh, that uh, he's cleared away, he gathers them and builds a wall. Well, that's typically what would happen. And now, there's no mention of the wall in, in the verses I just read, but have a look down in verse nine, if you, uh, verse 5. rather. If you look down in verse 5, uh, you'll see that the wall of this vineyard will be broken down. Right, so clearly, the, the, uh, the gardener at this point did build a wall. Oh, you're getting the picture. This is a very conscientious gardener. Uh, the third thing, uh, notice that this gardener doesn't skimp on the quality of the vines. Right? He's picked a good patch of land, he's, uh, he's cleared out the soil, uh, he's, uh, got, um, he's built his wall, put that in place, uh, but he, it's not like he picks the, the worst vines possible. He plants his vineyard with the choicest vines, we're told. Right? No skimping on quality, only the best for his vineyard. A fourth, notice that once the vines are planted and the wall's built, uh, the gardener has to wait Typically, this period would be about two years. It's a pretty long time. Two years before the first crop of grapes would come in. And during that time, some gardeners would lose interest. They'd get slack. They'd be a bit lazy. They'd be careless. Uh, But notice, not this gardener. This gardener uses that two years uh, to do two things. First, he builds a watchtower. So he gathers up all the stones that he hadn't used in the wall and he builds a watchtower. Why? So he has the best vantage point possible to see anything that might threaten his vineyard, anything that might uh, kind of impede its fruitfulness. And second, he uses the time to, to dig out a wine press. These wine presses, uh, they are actually kind of cut into the side of the hill. So you can imagine uh, uh, the higher vat, they basically had two vats. There was one vat cut in higher up the hill, and then there was a little trough that ran down to the lower vat. And so you can see this uh, gardener is doing absolutely everything possible to be ready for a crop of good grapes. Everything to enable his vineyard to bear good fruit. That's the point of this section. The preparation of the gardener is impeccable. Uh, So the end of verse 2 is completely expected, isn't it? Have a look at the end of verse 2. Isaiah says, then uh, the gardener looked for a crop of good grapes. Fair enough. uh, After all his hard work, he had every expectation that there'd be a crop of good grapes. Instead, his vineyard yielded only bad fruit. You see, have a look in verses 3 and 4. Isaiah asks the audience that he's singing to a question. You see what he's doing? He's, he's kind of drawing the audience in. He's engaging them. He's, he takes on the voice of the gardener. He says, Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and the people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have 
done for it. There's a problem here, isn't there? He, he, uh, there's bad fruit. And so the question is, whose fault is it? Whose fault is it that the vineyard didn't bear good fruit? Now, if I was the gardener, you could say it's the gardener's fault, but not this gardener. Right? You see Isaiah's question. Well, was the problem uh, with the preparation in some way? What more could the, the gardener have done? You can imagine he's singing this song. You can almost hear the audience saying nothing, can't you? Nothing. Right? There might have even been people saying, get rid of the stupid vineyard. Right? It's worthless. Start over again. Right? But whatever their responses might have been in verses 5 to 7, Isaiah gives us the gardener's response. He says, now I'll tell you what I'm going to do with my vineyard. I'll take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I'll break down uh, its wall and it will be trampled. I'll make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I'll command the clouds not to rain on it. You see, this this gardener is not only going to abandon his vineyard, he's going to actively destroy it. We're told he's going to take away its hedge, which probably refers to the, the thorns that have grown up on top of the wall that he built. Right? And once he's removed the hedge, he, he will break down the wall. So the vineyard uh, is left with no protection. It'll be trampled, it'll be destroyed by, by uh, the, the animals in the region, wild animals, uh, animals that are grazing. You see, from this gardener's perspective, if the vineyard is only going to produce wild grapes... It deserves to be left in a wild state. That's the picture. The garden is no longer going to care for it. He's not going to prune it or cultivate it or protect it in any way. He's going to, be, he's going to leave it uh, com- uh, to be completely overrun until it's a wasteland. And so imagine you're in the audience at this point. I reckon still most of Isaiah's audience would have been with him. Like many of them had vineyards of their own. They were probably thinking, good on you. Good on you. Right? That's what that worthless vineyard deserves. Uh, of course, the end of verse uh, 6 does give us a hint of what's to come. Have a look at the end of verse 6. I reckon the average gardener might be kind of so angry at a worthless vineyard that they kind of wish that it doesn't rain on it. But it's a bit unusual, isn't it, to, uh, for a gardener to presume to command the clouds not to rain. This isn't any ordinary gardener, not the average gardener. And so in verse 7, Isaiah gives us the kind of the sting in the tail. He tells his audience that the vineyard is them. It's the nation of Israel, the people of Judah, the, the people uh, we're told that, that God once delighted in. Yet despite everything God had done for them, making every preparation for them to bear good fruit, they only bore bad fruit, you see. God expected a crop of justice and righteousness. Instead, his people produced a crop of violence and oppression and distress. Now, of course, Isaiah doesn't specifically say that Israel, that the people he's singing to, are going to be destroyed, or the people of Judah and Jerusalem, right? But do you think they joined the dots? I reckon they did. And if you think that's a bit harsh... Uh, imagine you just heard that song for the first time. Uh, why don't you ta- have another look at the rest of the song through the lens of verse 7. 
Think about how God, the great gardener, has made every preparation possible for his people, the people of Judah and Jerusalem, to bear good fruit. What did God do? He rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He guided them through the wilderness to Mount Sinai. He gave them clear directions for how they could worship him. The tabernacle and everything that went with that, the sacrificial system, he, he told them how they could live as his people. He gave them the law. He provided them every step of the way, all the way to the promised land, which was a good land, wasn't it? A fertile land, often described as a land flowing with milk and honey. And then what did God do? God did everything he could to clear out from the land anything or anyone that might prevent his people from bearing fruit. He provided a whole succession of prophets and other leaders who who acted like watchmen for the people of Israel. But they warned them about things that might threaten their fruitfulness, called them back to God. You get the idea. God made every preparation possible for his people to bear good fruit. So it was right for him to expect that. To expect that his people, that the people of a perfectly just and righteous God, to show at least some evidence of seeking justice and righteousness themselves. But he saw nothing like that. All he saw was corruption and violence and distress. So it's clear, isn't it? It's not God's fault. The problem's not with God, the gardener, it's with the vineyard, the people. And so it's perfectly right for God to judge his people. Right? He created his people, he planted his people in the land. It's right for him to judge them. It's his right to do that. To remove his protection from them, his blessing from them, so they're overrun by their enemies. And that's what we're going to hear a whole lot more about in the, in the next few weeks. But you see, I mean, this is the thing. That there is a real connection between creation and judgment. You know, I don't know if you've thought about that. Uh, but God created the nation of Israel. He planted them in the land. So it was his right to critique them, to judge them. Oh, I think we get that. Even, even uh, Ada, my daughter, gets that. Right? We go to the park. Uh, we make a sandcastle. She makes it. It's her right to knock it down. It's her right to critique it. We go to the park, we make a little kind of bush thing. She likes to kind of shove different branches in the ground and it's her kind of bush city or whatever she calls it. She made it. It's her right to destroy it, to remove her protection from it. That's what's going on here. God made Israel. He had certain expectations of Israel. They didn't meet them. It's his right to judge his people. Creation and judgment are always linked so I hope you can see that the main point of this passage, we're going to, it's going to be unpacked a whole lot more next week when Adam preaches, but the main point of this passage is that God expects us to bear good fruit. So I really want to spend the rest of our time thinking about how we can do that. Uh, if you've got a Bible, uh, it, and if you don't have a Bible, uh, as Adam mentioned, there's some at the back there, um, maybe download an app on your phone or something, but uh, if you've got a Bible, uh, it would be helpful if you could turn to John chapter 15, verses 1 to 8. John chapter 15, verses 1 to 8. Uh, if you've got a Bible at home, it would be really great if you could bring that along to church. Uh, we want to be a church that's getting into the Bible together. John chapter 15, verses 1 to 8. And I reckon uh, when you get there, uh, some of the imagery might be a bit familiar. I'll read these verses out. John 15, verses 1 to 8. Jesus says, 
I am the vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that, uh, that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes, uh, so it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. Uh, it must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. So maybe if you've got the outline there and the connect card, I want to explore this passage under the headings of five different P's. Sorry, I'll give them to you. They're there in the outline. Uh, the first P I want you to see is that Jesus, a bit like what Gabby was saying in the kids' talk, uh, Jesus is the ultimate person who bears good fruit. Well, that's what he means when he says, I am the true vine. Right? He's saying, unlike Israel, who repeatedly bore bad fruit, unlike you and I, who repeatedly bear bad fruit, uh, Jesus is the true vine, the perfect vine, the ultimate vine, the, one, uh, the vine who always bears good fruit. And later in Isaiah, we'll see this. You know, Isaiah 53 verse 2 says, uh, Jesus grew up before the Lord like a tender shoot. He was like a root coming out of dry ground. That's in Isaiah 53. And even though Jesus was despised and rejected by humanity, uh, um, uh, his father delighted in him. You might remember Jesus' baptism. His father said what? He said, you are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. The Father delights in the Son. Just as God once delighted in Israel, his vineyard, now he delights in his Son, the true vineyard. The vineyard who, as verse 8 says, always bears good fruit, good fruit that brings glory to his Father. Jesus is the true vine. And that's important because it reminds us that none of us are the true vine. You're not, I'm not. All of us have lots of bad fruit in our lives. But we just keep producing it, don't we? So be comforted. Right? Because in one, in one sense, that's okay. God knows that. It's Jesus who's the true vine, not you. Jesus is the true vine. But still, Jesus clearly expects his disciples to bear at least some fruit, to be more fruitful. So how's that going to happen? Well, first, uh, it happens through the preparation of our Father. You notice here our father's the garden. The first thing our father does to prepare us for bearing fruit is, if you see it there, is he cuts off every branch that doesn't bear fruit. Now, most people connect that idea uh, to verse 6. If you look at verse 6, they say, uh, this is about God cutting off spiritually dead branches, fruitless, fruitless Christians, basically, uh, Christians that are good for nothing except being burnt in the fire. That's verse 6. I don't buy that. In fact, as I was studying the passage this week, I read a whole bunch of stuff, and I discovered that the primary meaning of this word translated as cut off is actually to lift up. That's what it's translated as mostly, in fact. And that makes the most sense here. At first, because the whole emphasis in these initial verses is that the Father is caring for the branches. He's the gardener. He's a good gardener. He's tending to the branches to try and make them more fruitful. 
So why would Jesus say the first thing the Father does when he comes across an unfruitful branch is cut it off? It just doesn't make sense. What kind of gardener does that? Our Father's a caring gardener, a a conscientious gardener. The first thing he does with an unfruitful branch is not cut it off, but lift it up. I'm not an expert on growing grapes, but from what I was reading during the week, that's exactly what any gardener would do with their vines. Because, you know, like some, uh, some vegetables, you know, Disclaimer, I said at the start, I don't know anything about this, but from what I'm told, right? Some vegetables grow really well if they're just hanging down on the ground. Not grapes. Right? Grapes have to be lifted up so they can get the most sun, they can get the most rain. Right? Any decent gardener would know that, including God. So the first thing our Father does when uh, you are unfruitful when I'm unfruitful, is not cut us off and throw us in the fire. Uh, The first thing he does is he lifts us up. What does that mean? I think it means he draws us closer to him. He stirs up our love for him, our devotion to him. Because it's in that place where we're we're reminded of his love, we're assured of his love, where we're lifted up to him. Uh, That's the place where fruit-bearing happens. And that leads to the second thing, right? I think this is why it's really important to get these things in order because the second thing our Father does is that once he's lifted us up and assured us of his love is he prunes us. Well, like an actual gardener who removes anything from a branch that, that's going to prevent it bearing fruit. You know, you're thinking like cleaning the branch. That actually, the word prune I can also mean clean here. So the picture is, you know, get rid of the insects, the moss, the parasites. Get all that out of the way to maximize fruitfulness. That's what God does in his fatherly care. Removing anything from your life that's preventing you uh, that's preventing you from not just being fruitful, but from, notice, uh, this is a fruitful branch that's being made more fruitful. Maximum fruitfulness. So God will remove things from your life. He'll strip away sinful habits. Uh, he'll reorder priorities. He'll recalibrate your value system. He may even remove a relationship from your life. God is prepared to remove anything that's preventing you from bearing maximum fruits. And let's be honest, that is painful, isn't it? It's painful. That's why it's important that the lifting up comes first. I think that's the way the passage makes the most sense. God assures us of his love for us. And in that place where we're sure of his love, we can cope with the pain of pruning. We can trust that our Father's working for our good, for our maximum fruitfulness, even though this current situation is really painful. And God's pruning happens by the power of his word. That's how his pruning happens. In verse 3, Jesus says, uh, you are already clean. Right, that, that word clean, I, say, I just said, it can also mean prune. Some of your Bibles will have a footnote there. Right, you are already clean or pruned uh, because the word I have spoken to you. This pruning happens, this ongoing cleaning happens in our lives by the power of God's word. That's how it happens. So this is how God our Father, the great gardener, prepares us for bearing fruit. We've had the person, we've had the preparation. Now we've come to what I've called the power of bearing fruit. Verses 4 and 5. Have a look there. 
Uh, Jesus says, remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Notice the repetition. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from, you can, uh, apart from me, uh, you can do nothing. Uh, you feel Jesus is making a point? He's, he's driving home with the repetition uh, that the power for bearing fruit is not found in you. The call of the Christian life is not to go, oh, I've got lots of bad fruit in my life, so I've got to work really hard to clean myself up. No, 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 you can't do that. The power for bearing good fruit is not found in you. It's found in Christ, in remaining in Christ, in being so deeply connected with Christ that you're like a branch connected to a vine. And Christ says when you're connected with him uh, like that, you will bear much fruit. It's just inevitable. All right, it might take a while. You might be frustrated for long periods of time, like if you sat in your orchard and, and looked at a fruit tree kind of every second of every day, uh, there's going to be time where you think, is this tree going to produce fruit at all? Right, so some of us are like that with our spiritual lives, like, like constantly introspective, kind of examining ourselves. We're like, well, over the long haul, yeah. But if you're connected with Christ, it's inevitable that you will bear good fruit. Why? Because Christ is the true vine who always bears good fruit. And now the question is, how exactly do we remain in Christ, isn't it? If that's, the, if that's where the power is found for bearing good fruit, how do we keep fostering this, this deep union with Christ that brings life to us? Well, really, it's like any uh, deep life-giving union. I think about it like this. Uh, if I want my uh, union with Gabby to be strong, to be fruitful, to be life-giving, I really have to do two main things. Right? First, I have to listen to her. And second, I have to respond to her. Those two things, uh, marriage tips 101, uh, listen to your wife and respond to your wife. It works well. Uh, The relationship will go better. I'm not saying I nail that, but uh, uh, so there we go. And, And that's actually right at the heart of what it means to remain in Christ, practically. This is the practice. Right? Have a look in verse 7. Uh, The practice of remaining in Christ. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So the key to remaining in Christ, first and foremost, is having his words remain in you. His word, the word remain, it's like dwell, it's abide, it's live. So you need Christ's words to be dwelling in you, to to be filling you. Like Paul says in in Colossians, he says, may the word of Christ dwell in you richly. May it remain in you. We've got to remember that because I I reckon some of us think uh, that we can have Christ without having his words. We want Christ, some kind of experience of Christ, some kind of version of Christ, but we don't want his teaching. Uh, Unless, of course, we can redefine it or reinterpret it or perhaps even outright reject it. Uh, But in the previous chapter, John 14, verse 23, Jesus said, anyone who loves me will reject my teaching? No. Reinterpret it? No. Obey my teaching. You can't claim to love Christ without loving and obeying his words. And really, you can't hope to remain in Christ without having his words remain in you. That's what brings life. Otherwise, the relationship, like any relationship, will just wither and die like a branch that's been cut off from the vine and it's good for nothing. 
Well, that's the point about vines, actually. They're not much good for anything apart from bearing fruit. Right? If, you've got some, if you've got a tree that uh, is dead, you could chop it down and use the wood to do something else. Right? But uh, a vine, if it's, if it's not bearing fruit, it's basically useless. You may as well just chuck it in the fire. That's, that's the picture there. So I guess the obvious question is, is how are you going having Christ's words remain in you? This is the practical edge of this. Right? You've got to have a plan for reading the Bible. There's a couple on the back table if you don't have one. But it's not some kind of system. These things don't happen by accident. You know, if you want to get physically fit, it doesn't just happen magically. You know, each night, gee, God, I hope, I just hope tonight, overnight, you'd magically you know, give me a six-pack. Like, it doesn't happen. You've got to kind of lock in workouts, don't you? Some of us have that approach to spiritual. I'll just pray, and each night God will magically kind of do something, and oh, well, what do you know? Spiritual fruit. No, actually, like we've got to we've got to be disciplined about this. Have you got a plan for reading the Bible? Maybe you need some help with that. Talk to someone about it. Maybe you want to join a gospel community so you can study the Bible with other Christians. Please talk to myself about this, to someone else about it, because the reality is if we want to bear fruit that our Heavenly Father expects, uh, that brings glory to Him, Christ's Word has to remain. It it has to take root in our hearts and minds deeply. Uh, That's how this fruit-bearing happens. It's not just about having Christ's words remain in you, is it? It's, about, it's not just about listening to Christ. It's also about responding to Christ. Right? It's prayer. Jesus says, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Right? Bible reading and prayer. Christian Life 101, really. Listening to Christ's words in the Bible, responding to Christ's words in prayer. It's like the engine room for bearing good fruit. Really hard to bear good fruit if you if you haven't nutted out how to do those two things, and we all struggle with it, right? So so we need the help of one another. And I guess that the reality that we struggle with it, that the reality that uh, I started with, I look at my own life and I said, uh, often I feel like there's more weeds or thorns. Maybe you feel like that. Uh, if that's you, uh, you probably find verse six pretty intimidating. Verse 6, it's really about the penalty for fruitlessness. It's pretty grim. If you do not remain in me and you're uh, you're like a branch that's thrown away and withers, such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and they're burned. I wonder, is that our destiny if we're a fruitless Christian? Is that what Jesus is saying? I don't think so, actually. At least not... Not in the way that you're probably thinking. I don't think Jesus is saying here that a true Christian who is fruitless will be burnt up in the fires of God's judgment. I really don't think he's saying that. uh, Because uh, back in John chapter 10, he said, My sheep listen to my voice, I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. So this throwing into the fire can't refer to a genuine Christian perishing in God's judgment. Like Jesus has already said that that won't happen. It can't refer to them being thrown out of Christ's hand into the fires of God's judgment. Because he's already said that no one can snatch them out of his hand. He wouldn't contradict himself. Well, what is he saying? Oh, he's not saying that the unfruitful Christian themselves will perish. But he is saying 
that their fruitless deeds will perish. At least that's what I think. So it's a bit like what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul's talking about the quality of our works, our fruitfulness, and he says the quality of our works will be revealed on the last day in the fires of God's judgment. Verse 15, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 15, if our works are burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. So if you're a true Christian who trusts in Jesus' death on the cross, uh, you will not perish in God's judgment. Your fruitless deeds will perish, but you will be saved. So the question is, if you think about Isaiah chapter 5, John 15, uh, how is it that we, who in many ways are just as fruitless as the people of Israel, We've got just as much bad fruit in our lives. How is it that we don't have to pay the same penalty as them? Well, you'd probably know the answer, right? It's about Jesus, isn't it? Christ. Christ, the true vine. We've heard about him. The one who always bore good fruit. The one who God our Father could delight in. And yet Christ, the true vine, was willing to be thrown into the fires of God's judgment on the cross for us as if he was a fruitless branch. Just as the vineyard of Israel bore the full curse of God's judgment, remember that, Genesis 3, God's curse on sin is thorns and thistles and briars. That's what we see in Isaiah chapter 5. The vineyard bore the full curse of God's judgment. It was overrun with briars and thorns, overrun by its enemies. So also Christ, when he was strung up on the cross, bore the full curse of God's judgment. Right, strung, overrun by his enemies, strung up by his enemies. His head covered with what? With thorns. Right, he's bearing the curse of God's judgment, the fullness of God's judgment. And so as Christians, we never have to fear perishing in God's judgment. No fear of that. And so someone might say, well, what's the incentive for bearing fruit? Fear, that was a pretty powerful incentive. Well, to be honest, if that's, if that's what you think, I just don't think you've really understood what Christ has done for you. Not really. Like, because the incentive for bearing fruit is an overwhelming sense that you want to live your life to please the one you love. The one who's loved you. You know deeply that the, the, the one who loved you by giving his life for you did that, not just so you can escape the fires of God's judgment, but so you can bear much fruit. You see that in John 15. That's his point. That you, would, uh, that you would bear much fruit that your heavenly Father's preparing you for, the great gardener. Uh, that your heavenly Father expects of you. And that, uh, that the fruit that will bring honour and praise to him. That will bring much glory to him. And that will show you to be one of Jesus' disciples. Uh, so let me pray. Uh, gracious Heavenly Father, uh, we do pray that uh, this word, even that we've heard uh, today, would take root deeply in our hearts Uh, As we've read in John 15, that uh, this word would remain in our hearts in such a way that it bears much fruit that brings honour and praise to you. Uh, Please help us uh, to turn away from sin, to uproot weeds and and thorns from our lives that are preventing us from bearing fruit. Uh, Please help us, uh, Father, to humbly submit to your work in our lives as you uh, lift us up to yourself 
as you prune away things that might be preventing us from bearing fruit. Help us to be assured of your love and to humbly trust that you're working for our good and for our fruitfulness. Please make us a church in which the word of Christ dwells richly, that we might bear much fruit for his glory. Amen.